Welcome to our new series on faithful leadership. We're bringing you in-depth conversations to help you ponder what it means to be a faithful and wise leader. We have four excellent guests lined up for our second episode. Shirley Hoekstra, Russell Moore, Justin Gibney, and Walter Kim will help us consider the historic values of leadership as they share lessons gleaned from their own lives and provide encouragement and cautions for leaders today. I think one of the most dangerous things that can possibly happen is if people don't believe that you believe what it is that you're saying. And that's a, that's a tendency is simply to, to think, well, what would people want me to say? And I will say that. And that can make things easy for the moment. But long term, you're not going to be believed by the very people who need you to lead them. This is an edited version of our online conversation from June of 2020. You can find the full video of that conversation with transcript on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. We find ourselves now in the midst of at least three overlapping but distinct crises. A public health crisis in which America leads the world in both infections and deaths from coronavirus. An economic crisis in which rising joblessness and the tanking of entire industries has threatened to decimate the security and livelihood of millions of Americans. And a social and civic crisis fueled both by frustration over enduring racism and injustice and deep cultural schisms, polarization, and a fractured and frayed sense of the public good. So in these already chaotic and difficult times, can leaders prepare for the inevitable but still unpredictable turbulence ahead? What does it mean and what does it take to be a crisis-ready leader? We have an extraordinary group of discussants today, uniquely experienced in grappling with and addressing some of those questions. And in order to accommodate a fuller conversation, I'll offer just brief introductions of each of our discussants. So starting off, Russell Moore is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the moral and public policy entity of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. Justin Gibney is the executive director and co-founder of the AND Campaign, a nonprofit which aims to improve how Christians engage in politics and culture. Shirley Hoekstra is the president of the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. And Walter Kim is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, as well as the pastor for leadership at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia. Russell, Justin, Shirley, and Walter, welcome. It's great to have you all here. So let's just dive right in. We are in the midst of what seems to be crisis everywhere. We're in the middle of multiple interlocking crises, a health crisis, an economic crisis, a social crisis, a civic crisis, not to mention some of our ongoing political and cultural crises. Walter, I'd like for you to start us off here by just reflecting on how can any leader possibly be crisis ready for multiple crises at once? In some ways, we can't be because the crisis that we are encountering is demonstrating the fact that we are not omniscient. There is no way that we can predict the specific crisis that we would be facing, much less the combination of crises. 
But while we may not be able to answer the what, you know, what is the particular crisis that we could anticipate, we can answer certain basic questions of, about who, who are we as leaders? Why, why are certain principles so important to us? How, how are we to conduct ourselves in this particular moment? So Sheree, I, I think about this question and I think about the, an instance that happened in history. And I think I would describe our moment right now as an Arkhipov moment. Now, about 60 years ago, the world as we know it almost came to an end. But it didn't because one man was actually ready for the crisis. Not the particularities of what, but who he was. So in October 1962, there was the Soviets buildup around Cuba, and President Kennedy had ordered a naval blockade around that particular island. Now, unbeknownst to our naval blockade, there was a Soviet submarine armed with a nuclear warhead as powerful as the one that was dropped on Hiroshima. So the Navy had been ordered to drop depth charges around to surface any submarines that were underneath. They didn't want to sink the submarines, they just wanted to surface the submarine. But a particular submarine in which this nuclear warhead was on had been submerged for days longer than was normal. The air conditioning was broken, the temperatures in the sub were over 100 degrees, and there was carbon dioxide buildup. There was no radio signal on top of that. So the captain of the submarine was not able to get their order, his orders from Moscow. Uh, records afterwards showed that the captain was on the verge of launching a missile to strike the US. But one man convinced him not to, Vasily Arkhipov. He was a second in command and it was required of him to be able to unlock the missile in order to have it fired. And the records showed that he had very calmly and courageously talked the captain down from this decision. As I think about that, one man's calm and courage in a moment of crisis literally saved the world from nuclear warfare. Had he launched the missile, undoubtedly the US would have retaliated by launching nuclear warheads against the Soviet Union. And we would be living in a nightmare right now. Mm -hmm. Now, we are in some ways having another Arkhipov moment. The particularities of the crisis are different, but who we are, the moral courage that we could portray, the level of conduct, the, the calm, the ability to see two sides of an issue, not only from the Soviet side, but Vasily Arkhipov was able to see things from the American side, that perhaps they were not trying to sink the sub, but actually surface the sub. And he convinced the captain not to launch, as well as convincing the captain to surface. And when the sub was surfaced, the naval blockade opened a way for the sub to safely leave. Wow. I mean, what an extraordinary moment. For 50 years, the world did not know that because it was in the secret archives of our, our national military. And was only recently in the last decade was this opened up and discovered. I think we're in a moment where in a variety of ways, in a thousand different places, we are all as leaders having Arkhipov moments. Decisions of leadership where we're having asked the question, who we are, what do we believe? How are we going to conduct ourselves? 
And, and we can't anticipate the crisis in its particularities, but we can be certain kinds of people as Christians, definitely certain kinds of people in these moments. That's great. Walter, when I hear your story, I, I have chills and it makes me think that who you pick as team members are also extraordinarily important to be a crisis ready leader. What a great story. That is great. Russell, we'll start with you with the next question. Max Dupree once said that the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. But in our increasingly polarized environment, reality itself has become highly contested. We have facts and we have alternative facts. And even what might seem like a simple recounting of actual events has become increasingly ideologically freighted. How does a leader define reality, much less a vision, when there is so much confusion and conflict around doing so? Well, I think the first thing is to re realize where coming from. And a lot of that is coming from a place of fear. There's a, a tendency for people to want to find a herd, to, to find a group of people that they can hide with. And so I think recognizing that is the first part. And then having the sort of imagination to bear witness to what you believe to be the truth, uh, which means to think deeply, to feel deeply, to recognize what's going on, and to realize that often you're going to be speaking not only to the audience in front of you, but also to other people who are overhearing what's taking place. So I often think of leadership guru Seth Godin talks about the tendency to become paralyzed by the fear of failure or by the fact that the ideas that you're putting out are not immediately received. And what he said is any active leadership is speaking and finding the tribes of people who are going to come along. And as he says this, I think you know, Seth Godin's not a believer, but he's talking about something that is a biblical principle. This is exactly what Elijah is experiencing in the wilderness when he's He's collapsed before God and says, I and I only am left. And God says, no, you're not. There's a, there's a remnant of 7,000 now and, uh, and a number that no man can number from that. And so I think you have to, to recognize that that's the case and simply speak the truth in such a way that, uh, that there's a long-term credibility where I think one of the most dangerous things that can possibly happen is if people don't believe that you believe what it is that you're saying. And that's a, that's a tendency is simply to, to think, well, what would people want me to say? And I will say that. And that can make things easy for the moment. But long term, you're not going to be believed by the very people who need you to lead them. Shirley, let me ask you about a point that Russell raises, which is just the fear and the paralysis. Crises force leaders to make consequential decisions often among undesirable options with imperfect information amidst pressure and conflict. So mistakes are inevitable, yet often really costly. How do crisis-ready leaders avoid that kind of paralysis that Russell was mentioning and deal with the fear and the specter of mistakes? During this pandemic, I've joined a, a number of different groups of other similarly situated leaders. And just this week in the group that I was with, our facilitator said, you know, in a pandemic, you can only be roughly ready. And she actually said that because that, that fear and paralysis can happen because you think you have to get the right answer or the only answer. And she said, and I so agree with her, that there are so many variables that you cannot pin down. 
that the best you can be is roughly ready and then go with that. And it allows everybody to relax. And I think in this time of fear, Christians actually have the advantage because the Bible speaks about fear. It speaks about don't be afraid, don't be anxious, not because you've got the willpower to do it, but because you can bring your anxiety and your fear to God. And I'm sure with the other leaders on this call, you've woken up in the middle of the night and you've wondered about decisions or actions that you have to take. And then you say, Lord, I just have to give it over to you. Uh, You have it. I don't have to have it. You are the engine. I'm not the engine. And you'll give me a redo loop if I get it wrong, right? It is, it is not perfection, it's faithfulness. And I have to say that Christians in a pandemic live on gratitude for, to God for being the God that leads ahead of them in this pandemic. I mentioned earlier the social crisis we find ourselves in, much of which was triggered by the the killing of George Floyd and certainly fueled by the injustice of racism and our broader inability to get along with each other and to live with differences. And this is one that affects all of us in our various organizational capacities. You know, Justin, I know that your organization, the Anne Campaign, has been dedicated to improving our, the ways that we as believers engage both culturally and politically. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on how leaders can face this crisis in their own organizations. You know, it's interesting, as we noted earlier, that we're dealing with layers of, of crises, right? Not just one at a time. And so I think Walter was absolutely right in in one respect when it comes to the crisis. We want to bring a calm to people. We want to make sure that we're kind of a steady hand. But at the same time, when it comes to some of the social issues, I think it's also a time for us to bring a sense of urgency. I think the worst thing that we could do in this situation is not take it seriously and, and somewhat rally the troops to say, no, we need to deal with this immediately because these are life or death situations. And so that's some, sometimes the hard part about, about leadership. You have to kind of do both. And in this situation, we have to make sure that we're doing both. One of the things that the AND campaign has tried to do, especially when we're talking about racialized violence, is really bring the church in a redemptive way to deal with the history. Uh, the yeah. fact of the matter, when we look at it in, in you know, any historical context, is that we would not be in this position racially, you know, when it comes to race in America, if the church had done a better job early on, right? And so I think this presents the church with very much a defining moment to say, we need to speak in no uncertain terms about how we, where we stand when it comes to to racial injustice. We need to make sure that we are absolutely clear and we need to provide the leadership because as we see when things get too conservative or they get too progressive, You're not necessarily coming up with solutions. You're just coming up with kind of battling narratives. And so I think it's time for the church to step up, speak to speak into our failings, speak to the historical context, but also the path forward, because we are strategically placed, whether we be African-Americans, white, Asian, and so on, to have a conversation and to have a a, a wide impact if we get on the same page. Mm -hmm. Russell and Walter, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that as well, leading as you do within a denomination with a broader coalition of evangelicals. Well, I think that Justin's exactly right, that there there can be a temptation to say, let's get through this immediate crisis by pretending that there's not a crisis. And I think that that's the wrong way to go. I've been reflecting a lot in all of these overlapping crises over the past several weeks about C.S. Lewis's sermon and essay, Learning in Wartime, 
where he's talking about one of the dangers when there's when when the world seems to be falling apart, and one of those things is being disillusioned. And uh, Lewis said, you ought to be geared toward the right kind of being disillusioned so that a, a crisis starts to reprioritize for you what matters and what doesn't. And I also think it's, a, it's an opportunity, a crisis is an opportunity for repentance to see what has gone wrong, why have these things taken place, and largely not, not simply to speak to the crisis at hand, but also to prepare people for crises that are coming that you can't even imagine and know now. To say, how can this happen? Why are we in a situation where, when black and brown Christians have been saying to their white brothers and sisters for longer than can be counted right now, there is a problem when it comes to the way that we are treated by systems of of justice in the country. Why is it that so often our tendency as white Christians, is not to hear that or to say that's a distraction. Okay, where's that coming from? You have to address the immediate problem, but you also have to say, how can we avoid this taking place again in some other, in some other way? So there's, there's often a, a moment of clarity that can take place in a crisis that actually can lead to, by God's grace, repentance and conformity with the will of Christ. And sometimes that means we're not going to have an easy sort of, there are a lot of people that I hear who seem to think that time itself will take care of all of these things. Well, it's, it's 2020. We should be beyond all of this as though history itself could do it. No, this takes repentant people who are vigilant constantly and working together with this. So we ought to be thinking right now about how do we address this immediate crisis and what are we teaching our children about how to address these issues when they come up in their own lives. I think of the admonition in James that we are to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. That we need to be quick to listen as both Justin and Russell have said, quick to listen to the stories of pain and sorrow that have been spoken, sung, repeated over and over again, but often not listened by those who have power and those who have the luxury not to have to listen to those stories because it's not their story. And the work of Christians in this space, I mean, this is testimony time. This is the time where we hear what is the lament of brothers and sisters, that we rejoice and we weep with those who weep. We we have this call of solidarity that you cause us to listen well and carefully, not defensively, not to negate the story or correct the story, but just to listen to it and slow to speak, slow to prescribe answers for others. Slow to anger, but I want to say slow to anger is not no to anger. Slow to anger because in the next verse it says we are to be slow to anger because human anger The anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. But there still is a place for anger. I think of Amos when he railed against the people of God. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. I could imagine elements of the religious community trying to tone God down. Whoa, 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 God. You know, that's a little bit radical. I mean, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Can you tone down your lament a bit more? and prophetic critique to make it more acceptable. So to Justin's point, while 
Well, I do very much advocate that leaders should have come. There, sh there are moments of righteous indignation. There are moments where we have to stand in lament and solidarity with the pain of others, and that it should make us indignant to the point of action. Repentance, restitution, a commitment to restorative justice, and, and a very long labor that is before us. Thanks for that, Walter. You mentioned James and the, um, our admonition to be slow to anger, eager to listen. And of course, the, the Bible has many other prescriptions for, for wise leadership as well, which you know, includes humility and kindness and compassion and a love of justice. And in a way, some of that is, perhaps we could say, complicated by the fact there was a fascinating Harvard Business Review article not too long ago that found that most people actually have a very hard time distinguishing between confidence, even arrogance, and competence, such that often hubristic, prideful, arrogant leaders are rewarded with increased public confidence. And those who are conspicuously slow to speak, humble, sometimes there is less confidence placed in them. Shirley, I was, would love to get your thoughts on this and then whoever else would like to comment on how does a Christian leader navigate that bind? Well, this idea of the competent and the competent leader was written about so well in the book, Good to Great, when Jim Collins talks about a level five leader. And he combines two things there. He combines actually humility with this passionate and, and deep will to succeed. And one without the other is actually incomplete. And so the, what you mentioned there about humility is a, just an essential piece of being a good leader, a crisis ready leader. And I think that this, you, you need confidence as, as a leader. You do. You need because you're 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 put out in front. You you have to be able to respond quickly. You have to make hard decisions, and so there is a need for confidence. And then, but an overconfidence can certainly reveal less competence. So how do you know when you're maybe not finding that right balance? And I think this is forming followers who will tell you the truth. Mm. I think. Um, I think you need people who are, who are willing to say uh, when you're arrogant. I think people need to tell you uh, when they think you're not doing it right or doing a good job or need to speed up. I, no leader can do it well on their own. And this is why, you know, when you look at anybody who's coming into leadership, you ask, can they form a good team? Mm -hmm. And uh, do they have the humility to hear from their team? Do you create spaces in your organization where people will speak back to you, actually even in front of others. Because often we're working in a group, not disrespect, but actually checking and making a conversation better. Yesterday, we were in our organization and we had to give some hard news. And in this pandemic, decisions, you feel like you're making a week of decisions in a day. And so sometimes they feel too long to some people and it feels like it's not enough time to others. And we were talking about this in a group of about 30 people. We were having a very honest and transparent discussion. And one of my colleagues gave this critique in front of the group and said, this is frustrating. I wish we had this decision earlier. And I really appreciate it. I saw that as a sign of health of my organization because we could talk about how followers were feeling about leadership decisions. And I responded to that 
saying, I wish we could make decisions faster. This is the best we could do in this circumstance. But that portrayed, I feel, a healthy and honest exchange between followers and leaders that make a leader better. That's great. So, so crises by nature tend to be all-consuming. And it becomes very difficult to balance one's leadership responsibilities with the obligations that one has elsewhere to their family, to their spouse, to their friends, their extended family, and the like. Justin, I know that you're the father of three small children, so this is probably a daily reality for you. Let's start with you. How, how does a crisis-ready leader discharge their obligations and duty as a leader in a consuming time when there's many other competing obligations that they have as well. Yeah, well, I think my wife's probably more responsible for that than, than I am. Uh, she, she, she holds me to it. But I think it starts with uh, an understanding that if you're burnt out or, or that if you, you know, you get in a situation where you're no longer um, being constructive, then you're not helped to any, anybody. And so you have to get rest. You have to Sabbath and carve out time to do so. I got great advice from Bishop Claude Alexander that says sometimes you just got to look at your calendar, mark out what you're, what you're, what the days that you're not going to do anything and, and just tell people no when you can't do that. And that can be tough, especially when people are looking for answers. They're looking for you to leadership. You do have to create boundaries. And, and I wish I could say that I got that perfectly. I think I'm learning as I go. But based on mentors like Bishop Alexander, I clearly am beginning to understand that it is about being able to say no and making sure there's time for the, for the family. I think within this crisis has been helpful because all the kids have been in the house the whole time and we've got a, a lot of time to spend together, but you have to be deliberate about it. And you can't just suspect that it'll happen, especially when people are looking for you, looking to you for leadership and looking to you for answers. That's great. Russell, I know you have small kids as well. Would be interested in your thoughts. Well, I think well, I agree with what Justin said. I also think that you you have to know yourself in order to know where your particular vulnerabilities mm -hmm. are. What are the what are the things that take more from you specifically as a person? Because we're built in different ways with different mentalities and so forth. And so there are there are some things that I have to I have to really work at making making time for because I know if those things aren't there, I'm going to be moving toward burnout. And if you just let things go on on autopilot, then you're going to end up in a situation where you can end up with a calendar that is completely the same as somebody else's, but a calendar that that person could thrive with and would be very destructive to you. And so I think uh, having similar to what Shirley uh, talked about in terms of uh, in terms of a team. I think the same thing is true in terms of a family. Uh, you need to have family members who are able to tell you uh, when things are out of kilter, and not just uh, not just in terms of time spent. You can spend a lot of time as a member of a family, but if everything is on edge and everyone's uh, living on eggshells. I was talking to somebody not long ago who was reflecting on his dad. And he said, when my dad came home, we had to all stop being ourselves because everything was just, anything could set him off, not necessarily toward anger, but in that case, it, the mentality was he's under enough stress and we don't want to put any more on him. Well, you have to have a family where you're able to, to figure out if that's you and have people who can say to you without fear of breaking the relationship, we need to do something different around here. 
you know, before we went live, Shirley, you were making a very interesting point about leaders and tiredness. <laughs> I was talking to fellow leaders. I have the, the, the delight to have been and am still in a discernment group. We've been together for about 10 years. And I called them and I said, I'm going to be on this webinar and I would appreciate your prayers because I'm feeling a little tired. And they said, well, say that. Say that when you're a crisis, when you're a leader in a crisis or just a leader with a responsibility that you actually have to know how to manage being tired. And you have to be able to take rest as, as my co-speakers here have said. But I think you also just have to name that. Sometimes I'll be in a room and I'll say, you know, I want you to know that if you're feeling that I've got an edge about me, it's not about you. It's not about you. I'm feeling tired. And for leaders to be able to acknowledge what's going on with them to the people that they serve with, I can really be helpful. And I do also think that to be a crisis ready leader, you have to put yourself in situations where you're pulled, tested. So I, I do like the conversations about balance because I think that balance is important. I, I do also think that you have to know how to manage yourself when you're really pulled and stressed. And that doesn't come without practice. And so it's a both and. What are your practices that enable you to kind of thrive or at least to lead well when you are pulled? Well, there are some really simple things to do as matters of practice as a, as a leader. And one of them is to get enough rest mm -hmm. and to be able to say no to things that happen at the end of the day so that you can actually retire on time. And so that if you wake up in the middle of the night, you've had enough time to maybe get a six or seven hours of sleep. Then I also think that you need to know when you have to go away and be quiet, have solitude and reflect in the word of God and to have prayer. And then lastly, I think you have to have people who pray for you. And if you can cultivate a group of people who pray for you, that you will be so much better and wiser, not because of your own strength, but because of those prayer partners. Yeah. Walter, evangelicals were once well known, at least in terms of their public expression of faith, as people who believed that character and leadership was of extraordinary importance. And there has been some evidence to suggest, you know, including a poll by the Public Religion Research Institute that suggests over the last decade or so, there's actually been a, a steep decline in self-reported evangelicals and how important they believe private character is to public leadership effectiveness. I'd be interested in your thoughts on what you think the consequences of this change of mindset is among evangelicals, as well as how important you believe character is to crisis-ready leadership. Sure, this is a deep question that has so many facets to it in terms of our political climate, the sociology of voting and the sociology of leadership over the last decade, and there are a lot of factors behind it, but I would wish to affirm a, a few things. One, in God's great providence, he, he can, of course, use sinners, and we all on this panel would heartily endorse that and are grateful that he would use sinners, God would use sinners. And so in God's providence, he could use rulers of all sorts to accomplish his purposes, and scripture is full of that. Yet at the same time, scripture and really reiterates the importance of character 
whether it's the qualifications of elders for leadership that you find in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. They all begin with moral qualities. They all begin with character qualities. And then finally, at the end, you have tacked on, and this person needs to manage family well, because if you can't manage a family, how can you manage a church? So managerial skill comes at the end of the list. It, it's all preceded by moral qualities. And you think of King David, what qualified him? Well, first and foremost, that he was a man after God's own heart. So I think it would be unwise for Christians to reinforce a divide of qualification from character, because in Scripture, we see reiterated over and over again, both the grace of God that could use people as they are, sinners as we all are, for his purposes, and yet what God desires is that the character qualities of leadership would be honorable. James also talks about not many of you should aspire to be teachers because they incur a greater judgment. Mm -hmm. So there's already a sense in scripture that those in leadership need to have exemplary moral character because leadership is not just about, as we've talked about earlier, you can't anticipate the crisis, but what you can anticipate is the moral fiber of a leader in any particular crisis. And if the moral fiber of a leader is one that upholds great honor and respect, you can guarantee, you can pretty much be assured that that's going to show up in a variety of places, even when there are moments of failure. And we will all have moments of failure. So as, is this a long-term trend that separates moral qualities from uh, political qualities or organizational qualities and competencies? I, I, I can't presume to know. But I can issue a deep caution and concern that from the Christian vision of leadership, we have reiterated over and over again, the moral fiber, the spiritual qualities of a person are always held preeminent and organizational competencies are secondary to that. Thanks, Walter. One question I'd really like to pose to each of you is your thoughts on the disciplines, the spiritual, intellectual, physical, even emotional disciplines that you believe are important to crisis-ready leadership, which habits and practices you employ, as well as whether there's any books you'd particularly recommend. So, Justin, let's start with you on that one. Yeah, I think one of the, the, the big things that I try to do, especially in moments of crisis, is focus in on discernment. And obviously prayer is a big part of discernment, but also having almost a team of advisors, right? So I have guys like Dr. Charlie Dates, Esau McCauley, who I can call and say, hey, talk to me, help me, you know, help me see clearly what's going on. Because sometimes we are too close to an issue, right? Or we're feeling some kind of way and it, it keeps us from actually seeing the issue very clearly. And so I think it's very good to have a team of trusted advisors who can kind of help you through those moments and you help them through those moments because you know you share the same values and they may have a perspective that you really need in that moment. One of the resources that I, that I kind of lean on and look to in that regard was written by Andy Crouch and the team at Praxis Labs. And they had a booklet called Rule of Life. And it, it speaks to Sabbath. It speaks to communication. All these things that need, leaders are going to need to be impactful and effective in moments of crisis and just overall. And so 
that's one resource that I would recommend. It's a free resource from Praxis Labs. It's been extremely helpful for me, for me, but certainly do your best to have a team of advisors who you can trust, who you share principles with to kind of get you through those tough moments where you might not be seeing clearly and your discernment could be a little bit off. That's great. Thanks, Justin. Russell, what about you? Uh, one of the things that's helpful to me is a good dose of pessimism, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I was having a conversation one time with this older man who had seen everything in his life, and I was posing some issue that I was dealing with, and everybody had been saying to me, well, it's going to be fine. It's not as bad as you think. And he said, let's suppose that this is just as bad as you think it is or worse. What then? <laughs> And that actually was the most hopeful thing that anybody had said to me at that moment, because then I could see the worst case scenario. I'm loved by God. I'm united to Christ. I'm raised with, from the dead with him and seated in the heavenly places. Mm -hmm. uh, and so whatever the worst case scenario I can imagine, even if that is true, my life is not over. I think every leader needs that. And also the ability to separate your sense of self from your sense of role and your sense of gift. I have a, a friend who was talking one time about his dad and he said, my dad was a really good man, but when he retired, he died almost immediately because he couldn't see that he was not his gift. And I think a, a tendency is for us to see ourselves as what it is that we bring to the table and, and then when you come to a point where, as Shirley said, you make a mistake or you come to a point where you're just not up for the, the crisis or you come to the point where you're done with a particular mission, then it's almost as though you're threatened with annihilation. And that's not the case for those of us who are in Christ. So having that sense of, of who you are in Christ is really important. In terms of things to read, I mentioned Seth Godin earlier, and one little book that he did was really helpful for me called The Dip. And it was about perseverance and just looking at perseverance in people's lives and how that works. It was really helpful, very short, I, but I give it to, to people all the time. I think there's a lot of people writing that down right now. I wrote that down. Surely. <laughs> well, I, I know that everyone in, in this room today says disciplines of prayer and exercise and, you know, healthy eating and things like that. But I want to talk about something that I came across as a discipline around social media. Hmm. And we spend, as leaders, we might spend some time on social media, partly because it's our job and partly it's the way we get information. And I have intentionally followed people I admire on my social media because there's a lot of things that come up on your feed and I want the majority of my feed to be things that teach me something. I follow the Ann campaign. I follow Russell Moore. I follow the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm inspired when Russell does the reading in exile pieces. I learned something about that. They're funny a lot of the time and that makes me laugh or when I see what Justin is doing on his social feed, and I think I can learn from him when he talks about going from performative to strategy, I think, yeah, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of double dipping you get in your life. You don't have a lot of time to do everything, but if you can find ways to put real meaning in the things that you have to do, you get blessed by that. So I follow people I get inspired by on my social media. That's great. Walter. Three things come to mind. One is a practice of friendship, 
has been mentioned over and over again. I, I recall Eugene Peterson, who gave an opening address at Regent College, which is where my wife and I studied for seminary. And he had mentioned in his opening address, during your time at Regent, if you can just make three friends, consider yourself successful. Three friends that you will keep for life. My wife and I are flaming extroverts. We thought, three friends? No, our goal is to get to know every single person in this seminary and just soak it up. I've come to see the wisdom of that. For the last 22 plus years, I have called nearly once a week with a friend from those years. We've lived in different countries at times and different states for the bulk of that time. And yet we carve out once a week the time to check in with each other and pray. It has been an extraordinary gift of helping me understand better who I am in Christ to have this person share life with me that deeply. The, the second thing is a practice of confession. I think as uh, those perhaps on the Protestant side of faith that we become very individualistic. So one thing that I would challenge people to is not only confess our sins to God, but enter into regular practices of confessing your sin to a, a trusted brother and sister in Christ, to learn the discipline of humbling oneself deeply before another, and to invite that other person to speak words of life and forgiveness and encouragement. I found that to be a transformative practice in my life as, as a leader. The third thing has been mentioned is, is prayer. I mean, I just look at the life of Jesus. He prayed as was his habit every morning before every major decision. He prayed, he fasted. I mean, he was just a man of prayer. And so I would desire for prayer to become as conspicuous in my life as it was in Jesus's life. And to that, and I've really delighted in this book, The Soul of Prayer by P.T. Forsyth, Theolo Scottish theologian of a previous generation, that I think this book has stood the test of time, and it, it speaks about prayer in ways that are culturally jarring to us, because they're not prayers of convenience, that is really an American way of doing things. They're not prayers of efficiency, they're deep invitations to enter into this mystery of what it means to be united with Christ, as, as Russell's talked about, united with our God. Russell, Justin, Shirley, and Walter, a hearty thanks to each of you for participating. This has been such a rich discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on faithful leadership. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of past events.